Let's do this. If you have a Bible, why don't you open it up to Mark chapter 1 with me, and we're just going to jump right in. Mark chapter 1 is where we're going to be. The goal of the next number of weeks, the next at least five or six weeks, is to take our community through our core values and practices as a community. And one of the hopes is, and there are a ton of people away this morning, but the hope is, is that to have, bring everybody through these five or six teachings around our mission, our vision, and our values. And at the end, we hope that this will kind of be a gateway in to membership here at Praxis. And so if you want to be a member, one of the things, even if people come in a year from now, we're going to push them to this teaching series just to listen through and engage in. And the hope is, is that that will bring everybody through so you guys really know what you're getting into. You following me? I just think it's good if you're going to be a part of a community where the hope is to bring the gospel to bear. We're kind of serious about what we do here, and so we want to really draw people in to the beauty and the wonder and the mission that God is leading us on. And so last week we talked a bit about our mission and our vision. Very clearly our mission is simply to do what Jesus says is great. And our vision as a community and how that works out is we are a community that practices the way of Jesus together. It's as simple as that. It's not rocket science. You don't have to like have a degree to understand this stuff. You can just literally walk into this new reality that this is really, really simple. We're a community that practices the way of Jesus together. And so one of the things we want to do is we want to talk about our core practices. What shapes us? Now here's the beautiful thing. With us and our particular community, yes, we're starting new and fresh and we're stepping into this idea of Praxis Church, but we also have a little bit of history. And so instead of putting things on the board or on the whiteboard that we'd like to become, we've actually done it backwards. Because one of the things I sense is churches lie a lot and just communities in general, we like to lie. We like to say, this is what we're about and then it really doesn't come into practice. Anybody with me? Okay, maybe not. Uh, this has been my experience, is we just like to talk a lot, and actually when it comes down to it, a lot of times there's a huge disconnect by, between what we're saying and what we're actually doing. Because we have a little bit of history under our belt, we get to put the things on the board and up as our core values that we feel like we actually do. You know, I was saying to somebody this week, I would love for prayer to be a core value here at Praxis, but we're not there yet. And it's something we long, you know, long to develop, but it's certainly not something I could say is one of our core practices. But there are five things I think that we've been doing really well, and these are the things that shape us. And we may add to this over time, but the hope is just to give a clear picture, uh, not just to who we're becoming, but partly to who we think we are. Make sense? And so Jesus of Nazareth gets on the scene in the Gospels in the first century, in Mark chapter 1, and if you look down to verse 14, this is how Mark records Jesus getting up on the scene. He says this, verse 14, and John was put into prison, so that's John the Baptist. There's a story there that we don't have time for, but it says, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the euangelion, the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. And Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, and he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he'd gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat 
uh, preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them and he left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Then you flip over basically one page in your Bible to Mark chapter 3. So that's Jesus calling the disciples to follow him. And then it says in Mark 3, just if you flip down to verse 13, it says this. It says, Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. And he appointed 12 that they, first of all, might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. Now, it's the 21st century, and I get it, but one of the things we have to think through is why would these trades dudes all of a sudden throw away everything they have in their career and their lives to follow a Jewish Messiah or a rabbi in Galilee? Like, what would... Because you got to think through this. This is kind of an interesting story when you think at the depths of it that somebody would give up... Basically, these men would give up their entire lives. Now, some of you are thinking, oh, they're just fishermen, right? They're just... It's who they are. They're just fishermen. I mean, something probably pretty easy to give up. Uh, in the first century, to be a fisherman, we know this. Peter was a fisherman here, we see, was a lucrative business. Don't, don't think some like, you know, out in some remote, I mean, obviously it was a remote area, but don't think that these guys, as they were kind of pursuing this fishing career and, and, and embodying this career, were not living in the depths of like a pretty, something that was pretty valuable to their lives. And they throw it all down. They give it all away to follow this rabbi. Well, if you know in the first century, rabbis were a thing. Teachers or sages were a thing. And they had followers. And I think one of the things we just need to think through is why would these guys give everything to follow Jesus? Now, are you up for, I know it's quiet in here, but are you up for a little bit of Jewish history? No. Okay. We're going to do it anyways. You can leave. We'll judge you because we are a church, but um, just joking. Um, here's what we're going to do. I just want to take a few minutes and, and build a bit of a framework, and this will help lead us because what's often lost in most of the contemporary Christian world when we come to this stuff is the reality that the first century world was filled with rabbis and apprentices or disciples. So to understand the rabbi-apprentice paradigm in a deeper way, it's best to observe this, the practices and these practices in the first century. So Jewish education was the central passion of the Jewish community. There's a Jewish historian, his name is Josephus. Anybody heard of Josephus before? He said this, and I quote, above all else, we pride ourselves on the education of our children. And so... At the age of six years old, all Hebrew children would attend the first level of education in the Jewish system at their local synagogue on Saturdays called Bet Sefer. Bet Sefer. Now, Bet Sefer is where they would memorize, ladies and gentlemen, all of the Torah by the age of 10. If you don't know what the Torah is, Torah is the first five books of that Bible from ages six to 10, these young kids would learn it by memory. Some of you like have flashbacks of Sunday school and you're like, I've forgotten everything. These kids would be able, for most of them, orally to spew back to you the first five books of the Bible. What happened then is the brightest of the students at 10 years old would move on to the next level of education called Bet Talmud. 
And Bet Talmud was also known as this thing called the House of Learning. It's where, it is here where students would learn by memory the entire law and prophets. Genesis, 10 years old, 11 years old. Genesis to Malachi. Anybody up for it? Right? Now, don't think of it as like memory as far as reading off a page as much as it is orally. It was an oral community, oral tradition. And so they would hear these stories and verbatim these kids would say it back. Now, there was a, a pendulum where those who didn't show a strong desire for learning and ability and those who weren't basically at the top of the class, they would return to their, their family's trade over time, whether it's a fisherman or whatever you did like some of these disciples. And then those who remained went from Bet Sefer as young kids to Bet Talmud, and eventually they entered into an apprenticeship kind of program called Bet Midrash. And the hope and the desire of this was that you would, as a student, look for a rabbi and their teaching, and you would actually apply yourself to that rabbi and really apply to be a follower of theirs. One of the things you would do, and it, literally there was it like interview process. You had to show yourself as bright and educated and somebody who desired to learn the teaching of that particular rabbi. So you'd go into this process and eventually the rabbi would say, yes, you are a follower or a disciple. Have we heard this word before? Right? Some of us Christian kids think discipleship was mutually exclusive to Jesus. Discipleship was rampant all over the first century as apprentices or disciples would follow their master or their sage or the rabbi. And so what happened is you would apply yourself to the rabbi, and if you were accepted, literally the term that was used is you would be covered in the dust of your rabbi. Now, some of you that are close to me know that I was going to bring dust in here and do a, you know, just like visual and put it up in there. But some of you know that I have a really hard time with dirt. Is anybody with me? So you should see my office. My office is a gong show. I am the most unorganized. I'm going to say it here. I'm the most unorganized person. Are you happy with me that I'm saying this? The most, most unorganized person on the planet. But when there's like dirt on clothes, oh, my mom... My mom, when I was younger, said that I wouldn't even go anywhere near the sandbox. So that illustration went kind of far away this morning and didn't show up. But here's the picture. We get a picture of the this, this sage teaching and going around and teaching his way or his yoke. And as an apprentice or a disciple, you would follow him into his yoke, into his teachings. And you got to think, first century, we're talking sandals. In the ancient Middle East, the dirt and the grime, you would literally be covered in the dust of your rabbi. A guy named Brad Young, he puts it like this. Here's a picture of this, this world. He says this. The sage was known as one who could answer a question in any area because he had complete knowledge of the Bible as well as the oral Torah. The disciple was known as one who could answer any question relating to his specific area of study in the oral tradition. A disciple is an individual who, when asked a question of religious law related to his studies, is able to answer it. So while the sage had achieved a mastery of understanding of all aspects of Jewish teachings, the disciple could interact with questions connected to his research. What plays for us today is the idea of a PhD. Some of you guys have, uh, we've had people in our community enter into that life where you literally work under somebody and you follow their way and you begin to build your life around that. So to become a disciple in the first century meant you would give up everything and then you get to Jesus of Nazareth. Think about it for a second. 
In the tradition, what you had to do is you literally had to go and apply and be good enough to enter into this way of discipleship. What does Jesus do? Jesus flips it on its head and goes as the rabbi and calls these young fishermen to follow him. It's completely turned upside down. And so this is why Mark and all the other gospel writers, they actually record the eagerness for these trades dudes to actually follow him. Because think about it, they grew up in this system, and in many ways they were sent home. And now a rabbi comes along and says, I want you to take upon yourself my yoke. I want, to I want you to take upon yourself my teaching. This is crazy because it actually changes the trajectory and the framework of what we know. Jesus actually comes to the guys that weren't really that good enough and says, come and follow. How good news is that? Anybody with me? Unless you're really good. But for me, uh, this, is, this, is, this news begins to sound really freaking good. And so discipleship was a way. It was something you entered into. It was an, as an apprentice, you would follow the way or the road of your master. And there's been a lot, there's a huge chasm now in the 21st century, especially when it comes to Christianity, because a lot of this is lost. Discipleship now often, or at least following Jesus, is often now for people connected to a political party or you know, maybe just going to church once in a while on Sunday. In the, in the first century, what we get in following Jesus was everything, your entire life. And the first thing Jesus says to his apprentices, the first thing he wants of them, it's so interesting, is he wants them to be with him. Isn't it interesting? That's the first thing that comes out. Not, not do this or be great or change the world, all this stuff that we absolutely love. The first thing that Jesus asks is that his disciples would be with him and they would go out and do what he did. And so our first core value here is really simple. Our first core value at Praxis is life with God. This is who we are. We believe as apprentices and disciples of Jesus, he's calling us in to a life with him. Now there's a guy named Askai Jatani. He's amazing, he's a writer, and he wrote a little book called With, and it's really a great reimagining of the uh, just about the life that God has called us to live as disciples. And in this book, J Jathani, he talks about the disorientation that we live in in our current moment and how we often have postures, uh, heart postures or way of living that often misses Jesus in his kingdom. And he actually gives four particular heart postures or life postures uh, in which... I would say are disoriented, and he would say are disoriented when it comes to a life with God. And I just want to talk about these because these are sneaky. The four things he actually talks about will help us understand kind of the life that God calls us into. Is this okay? First one is this, life from God. Life from God. Life from God is basically this. It wants God's blessing and gifts but is not particularly interested in God himself. Sneaky. This is sneaky. Uh, there's a guy named Dr. Uh, Scott McKnight. I've used his stuff a lot. And he's a professor of New Testament at a seminary in the States. And what he does is the first class of his class on Jesus, what he does is he gives out a set of about 25 questions in a survey to his class. And his class is asked to answer them. And a lot of these questions are about themselves and, and their way and their worldview and their way of life. Then what he does is he collects that 
kind of survey and test about themselves, and then gives out a survey about Jesus. And it's pretty similar. And he asks the students to fill out kind of their opinions, their framework, and their worldview of Jesus of Nazareth. And at the end of the surveys, guess what happens? The survey about themselves, the students themselves, looks a lot like the survey about Jesus. And he's just been collecting this data for years going, it's hilarious. This first class, every, almost every year, the answers are very much the same. He says this. He says the test results suggest that even though we like to think we are becoming more like Jesus, the reverse is probably more the case. We try to make Jesus like ourselves. This class comes in, does the survey, and it's interesting because I look at my own life and I think we all do this. Because life from God ultimately believes that God exists to supply what we need or desire. It sounds almost good, right? Life from God, but it's, it's sneaky and it's dangerous. I don't know uh, if you do this, but this week I did the, one, the scroll through the one-minute clips on, on Instagram of all like the famous preacher people. Anybody ever done that? And it's great that there's... There's this avenue for media and for the gospel to get out. But you know what was interesting about most of those clips? Most of the clips were about who? Me. Oh, it felt good, man. I was watching those things. I was like, amen, this is about me. I can do all things through Christ. I can conquer. I can... And there's some truth in that. There's certainly some truth. But man, most of these things that I saw in that five-minute kind of wheel were shaped around me and what I could get from God. And I think we need to be careful because we're actually caught up in a bigger story and a bigger narrative than just simply life from God. Jathani says this, he says, the posture is appealing because it doesn't ask us to change. What we desire, what we seek, what we do, and how we live are all shaped by consumerism and not uh, disrupted. Our values and way of life are simply projected onto God and incorporated into a religious system in which we receive divine assistance to meet our desires. Or as the cultural critic, Mark Sayers, would say, he would say, what we're experiencing right now in culture is not the eradication of God from the Western mind, but rather the enthroning of the self as the greatest authority. And what life from God often says is that I am at the center of the cosmos and God carries no inherent value. And this, my friends, life from God is all around us. And if we were honest, it's shaping us deeply as a community and society, right? So mental health is way, okay, mental health is way above my pay grade. Anybody with me? Can we get an amen on that one? Thank you. And we've had some people over the, the, the years come in and share with us, and there's many in our community that have a way better handle on this than I ever would. But one of the things I think we got to think through in all the disorientation in culture right now and all that we're experiencing with anxiety, depression, on the rise, there's no secret with that. One of the questions is just somebody who thinks critically and culturally is why? Like why over the last 10 or 20 or 100 years are we at this moment where there's a lot of crisis around mental health? Could it be that we come to God the way, you know, we're wired and designed for connection with God. I mean, if that's broken, it's really hard to live whole. But even on a deeper level, if we're living in a posture of life from God, I think it can kind of lead us down the wrong road. You know, it's interesting. They did a study recently at San Diego State, and they analyzed mental health records 
collected from between 1938 and 2007. So a wide, like, you know, 40 or 50 year gap there. And they did this survey amongst 63,000 adults, and they said they saw a dramatic increase in psychological problems since the 1930s, especially recently depression. Uh, ABC, ABC reported that the researchers found that students today feel much more isolated, misunderstood, emotionally sensitive, or unstable than in previous decades. In addition, teens today are more likely to be narcissistic, have poor self-control, and to say that they're worried, sad, and dissatisfied with life. And this study concluded that consumerism, consumerism itself, is a major reason for the rise and mental illness. It goes on to say, we have become a culture that focuses on material things and less on relationships. And there's plenty here, and I know I'm opening up a can of worms, but one of the questions is, do we come from this posture, and is it like getting at us at the core of humanity? If we just expect life from God, it's going to be disoriented. We're not designed to have life from God, there's a better way. And I think we need to start asking questions. There's certainly heredity, there's all sorts of things in great studies that have shown why we are where we are. But as the Jesus community, I think we have to ask some deep questions about this. So life from God. But then, Jathani goes on, he talks about life over God. Life over God. Now this, my friends, is the posture of our city and the place and space in which we inhabit and the place in which we live. Life over God is the, is the reality that the mystery and the wonder of the world is lost as God is abandoned in favor of proven formulas and controllable outcomes. There's a guy named Charles Taylor. I've talked about him tons. You hanging with me? Charles Taylor talks about how since the Enlightenment, before the Enlightenment, it was almost impossible not to believe. Everybody held a fund fundamental, some fundamental belief in the divine. But now in the postmodern, post-enlightenment world, it's almost like flipped out on its own where it's impossible to believe. And some of you will wake up in the morning and you'll go to a work environment and you're like, this is my life. Now the problem is, is that life over God manifests itself in a couple different ways. One is atheism, as you well know, is a rejection or lack of an acknowledgement of the divine or God. Or deism, which affirms that God exists and has created the universe but believes he has no no hands-on involvement with humanity. He's distant and he's uninvolved. Now, tons of things have evolved from this. Life over God is the posture. I mean, there's so many different studies in the last 10 years that would show this is just, as humans have, we've evolved to the place and space we are, this is where we are, life over God. Christian Smith talks about the prevailing religion in the world right now is something called moralistic therapeutic deism. Moralistic, God wants me to be good and happy. Therapeutic, he's kind of there to make me feel good. And deism, he's not really hands-on, he's at a distance. And I just want to be a good person and maybe I'll go to heaven someday when I die. Like This is the research that has been coming to the forefront. A guy named Reginald Bibby, uh, a couple years ago, I guess about 10 years ago now, he's Canadian. This is his research on Canadians. Ready? This is great. This is his research on Canadians. One, people do not consider Jesus or the church relevant. Two, Guilt for sin is not a big issue. Three, most have faith and are content with it. Four, most have few reference points to Christianity. And five, they want you to be a Christian. Anybody else live in this world? They want you to be a Christian. So life over God effectively cuts out the middleman 
and gives us direct control over our lives. We live in what we now call the age of authenticity or autonomy. Life from God and life over God. Then, Jathani talks about life under God. Life under God. Life under God sees God in simple cause and effect terms in which we obey his commands and he blesses our lives and our families. This transactional way of living, that's so freaking dangerous. We've got to be so cautious of this. So ultimately, in life under God, our role as humans is to determine what he approves or disapproves of and work vigilantly to remain within those boundaries. So for many who grew up in the church, it looks like this. A parent who thinks that sending their kid to church regularly or to Christian school will automatically mean that they follow Jesus and stay out of trouble. Or the person who thinks that if they read their Bible and pray every day, that they won't suffer, right? Cause and effect. If I do the right things, the right things are going to come back to me. Or the person, this is, you know, student college ministry, you know, for years, the person who thinks that if they wait until they're married to have sex, that when that time eventually comes, it's going to be euphoric, and then it's just real life. This... This idea that if I just do the right thing and be good and do good things, that stuff is going to come back to me the way it should. In 2010, I used to be a Bills fan, but I turned into a Patriots fan because they actually win. Anybody with me? Come on, Spence. Judge me all you want. I remember this, actually. In 2010, there was a football game, a guy named Stevie Johnson. Anybody rem- no, none of you care, but anybody remember Stevie Johnson? He just talked a lot, and he was a receiver for the Bills. He was in the end zone. Final play of the game to win the game. Ball went right through his hands. He dropped it. And this is what Stevie Johnson said after the game. He said this, and Stevie Johnson was hilarious. I love this. He says, I, and he said this to the reporter about God. I praise you 24-7, and this is how you do me. You expect me to learn from this? How? I'll never forget this ever. His posture was, I do good things, and God will make me catch the ball. And when I drop the ball, guess who's in trouble? Yeah. See, and we know, most of you have lived long enough now to know this is not the way God works. I think at first in your journey, at least for me, you think it's like this exchange, like put in and get out. And then you, re- and not that formation and practice, we're going to talk lots about that over the next, next few weeks, but maybe it's not as neat and tidy as we once thought. And life under God, a lot of people live this way. If I just do the right things, then I'll appease God and he'll be good to me. And there's a lot of danger there. Following me? Life from God, posture. Life over God is a posture. Life under God is a posture. And then here's one that's super sneaky especially if you're a three on the Enneagram. Some, most of my threes are away today on the Enneagram, so it's all good. Life for God. Now, this sounds really good. Life for God, right? And especially when your church name is Praxis Church and your vision is to actually practice and do stuff, this sounds really, really good. But there's a danger because this posture believes that the most significant life is expended accomplishing great things in God's service. Ultimately, this posture towards God 
is all about doing things and the obsession to get stuff done for God to find legitimacy. It's the person who gathers every Sunday and they know it and they let everybody else know it or they go to their small group every week. Or it's the person who thinks the only reason that I could ever be involved in community is to do great things for God. And ultimately the posture is focusing on what you do. And please hear me clearly, doing stuff for God is great. But when this is our initial posture, it's sneaky dangerous. Jathani says this, making God's mission into an idol is a common and serious fault of the life for God posture because it perpetuates the rebellion of Eden. Listen to this. It is a more subtle way of dethroning God and replacing him with something we can control. Some of us, like myself, this was the posture of my life for so many years. Life for God. I'm gonna change the world, gonna do great things. And I would say that there was deep within me until the last few years a perpetuation of Eden, this idea that I can dethrone God by what I do. Hey, look at me, right? This idea of life for God takes our fear of insignificance and throws gasoline on it. This is the story of my life, life for God. It was Dallas Willard who said, there's a difference between effort and earning. If you're trying to earn your way to dethrone God by what you do, you're missing the gospel at its core. And so life um, from God, life over God, life under God, life for God, but ultimately what we want to cultivate here, and this is our mission, part of our values and what we want to do with everything that we do is we want to cultivate life with God. Can you just say, I know it's, it's quiet, but can you just say that with me? Life with God? Life with God. The life with God posture is completely different because it's actually the story that we're caught up in. This life with God posture is predicated on the view that relationship is at the core of the cosmos. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Trinity, that Life, we are called into this divine dance to be in relationship, in rhythm with God. And I just think, you know, these other four postures, what they do is they seek to use God to achieve some other goal. God is a means to an end and not the end. And that's really dangerous. If we posture ourselves to be in community and life with God, what we then say is God is not just an, a means to an end or something we're trying to achieve, but in and of himself, God is the end. If anything, that's the hope. As we shape this new community, and as we kind of do this rebrand and enter into a new season, all I care about, and this is why it's the first one, all we care about is that you and I are living life with God. Why do we exist? We want to push you into a relationship with the creator of the cosmos. And we want you to guard, and I'm talking to myself, guard ourselves from these postures that can often, over time, become destructive. This is all about life with God. This is why we exist. Everything else we talk about is predicated out of a life with God. So we have other core values like the table and formation and practice and church's family and simplicity, things that we do, but it all begins with life with God. This is why we're here. You know, John 15 Jesus is really clear before he goes to the cross that this is all about connection with the Father. He says this, I'm the true vine and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. 
You are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. And Jesus says, remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. Then he goes on to say this. I am the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. But if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. And so one of the things we're really asking and working hard is how do we cultivate lives in this community that are connected to the vine? All at the core of who I am and at the core of who our team is, we want our community to do and be in relationship with God. And so how do we do this, right? Because here's the thing, there's lots of talk in the Christian world right now about the Jesus way, which we're all about, and about following Jesus and being a Jesus community. But one of the tensions is, is Jesus here? That was a question. I haven't, you got a sweet beard, bro. I, lo- I love, it's coming along pretty good. I think if you put like, you know, a robot, maybe Northern Galilean rabbi, maybe. But I don't often seen Jesus in flesh and blood recently. And so when we talk about the work of the Spirit, here's the thing. You know, a lot of times people will say, well, you're Pentecostal. You have a Pentecostal background, so that's why you talk about the Holy Spirit. I talk, we talk a lot here about the Holy Spirit because Jesus isn't here without the, Holy, without the Spirit, without the Holy Spirit. And so I just want us to re- just remind us that this whole idea of life with God is predicated on the work of the Spirit and Jesus being revealed by the Spirit. This is what Jesus says. He says this, as he's going to the cross, he says in John 14. He says, if you love me, keep my commands and I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it it has neither seen him nor knows him, but you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me because I live. You also will live. Jesus knows and understands that he's leaving and it's so much better. And it's better because now, instead of it being in one place at one time, like he was in the first century in northern Israel, he's here among us because his spirit is here. Jesus is everywhere that the spirit is. And so one of the things we've been talking is life with God means that we're called into this life in the spirit. We're these people that are immersed in the Holy Spirit. And this is why we talk about the Holy Spirit so much, not because we have an affiliation with some denomination. or This is getting down to the core of the gospel. If Jesus is present among us, he's here by his spirit. And here's the thing, the entire story from Genesis to what we get to right here in the present moment is all about God being with his people. This is what it's all about. We have mission, we have tons of dreams, we have more vision than we have money, people, whatever, at this moment in time. But the one thing we keep before us is that the entire story is about God being with his people. Starts in Eden, it's fractured because of sin, 
God is with his people, we see, in the end, in the New Jerusalem. Just as God was walking in the cool of the day in in Eden, now the picture we get of a future world for us is that he'll be walking in the cool of the day with us. How cool is that? Not disconnected, not fractured, but this symbiotic relationship where God is in rhythm with his people. And here's the thing. We actually get to experience the future in the present. This This is what it means to follow God follow Jesus. We get to experience what we will experience in the future at resurrection, but we get to experience it now, life with God. And so everything we're doing here is pushing people to a relationship, a deep, beautiful relationship and life with God, that the Spirit lives within us and that cultivates within us this life with God. Now, you're hanging with me. You okay? Oh, man, you're a quiet bunch. That's okay. That's all right. Um, Before we come to the tables, two seconds on just some really practical stuff and how we can live this out. Because it's easy to get up and say, well, here's our heart posture at times, and here's how it should be. But one of the things we're trying to do every second of the day is lead our community to a position and a posture where things are being practiced, where life with God is actually being practiced. And so one of the things you may or may not know is every season... We practice a spiritual discipline together. So instead of just hearing things and thinking about things in our brain, the way you actually do things, and we'll talk about this in the future in the next few weeks about just formation and practice, every season we're practicing a spiritual discipline together. Right now, uh, as we kind of get things rolling with praxis, is we are practicing the, the daily discipline of fixed hour prayer. Fixed hour prayer is also known as the daily office, And it's simply this, spending time in prayer and reflection three times a day, morning, midday, and evening, for five to ten minutes each time. It's as simple as that. Now, here's the thing. I know a guy once, he was talking to me. It's actually me, okay. Sometimes I talk to myself. Who would say to people all the time, oh, I pray. You know, Paul says, pray without ceasing. That's me. I pray without ceasing. I pray all the time, and I realize, guess what? I don't pray at all. And then a couple years ago, I entered into this. You know, there's one thing actually that our Muslim friends and friends from other religions actually do really well, and they pray. And for some of us, that's really hard to hear, but it's just true. That for some reason, we think, oh, we got the Spirit, so we're just going to do whatever we want. But what I've realized over the last little while is actually fixed times is not only a biblical thing, it's deeply rooted in the Jewish community. Think of Daniel when he was turning towards Jerusalem. It was this fixed hour. And I'm not saying don't pray all the time, but I'm, I'm saying in my story, I would tell people I pray all the time and realize I don't pray at all. And so I entered into this life, and this has been really helpful. And so we're just encouraging you over the next little while up into Lent to practice fixed hour prayer. Now here's the thing. There's a couple things that will help you. First of all, if you go to mypraxis.church slash spiritualpraxis, there is resource there to help you guys in this endeavor in life with God. There's some resources, recommended reading, and there's actually, if you go to the next slide, there's actually an app, if you're an iPhone user, I'm sorry if you're Android, but you just need to repent and turn to Jesus, okay? And then go buy an app, I'm just joking, I don't, I don't really care. Trying, to, trying not to use my phone, if anything. But one thing that has been really helpful is the Common Prayer app is an app that alerts you morning, midday, and evening, uh, and it gives you prescripted prayers. And this has changed my life. Common prayer has changed 
So I grew up in a charismatic church, and it was great. But one of the things I'm learning with actually the practice of the way of Jesus is I need my phone to notify me to stop and pray. But not only that, even this week I was driving and you just get sidetracked. I'm like, I'm gonna pray for 10 minutes on my commute. One of the things that prescriptive prayers do is it helps lead you. And so there's ancient prayers written by the church fathers that are given to help lead your prayer time. Oh, I, Drew, I pray, all the, I pray all the time without ceasing. No, you don't. I love you, but you probably don't. And this would really help you, and it's been something that's really helped uh, me. And I know other people used it last year when it in- introduced it, and now it's a common thread in the life. Just the common prayer three times a day, also known as the daily office. But as well, there's some other things that will help you. Uh, one thing that, and I don't want to push everything that I'm doing, but one thing that I've stumbled into is a particular devotional called the With God Daily Devotional. I don't know if you can throw the next slide up. I think it's there. So a guy named Sky Jathani, who we've used his stuff this morning, he did some research uh, with Barna, I think, and he realized that 79% of us reach for our phone within 15 minutes of waking up, come to Jesus. 15 minutes. Some of you, it's like 15 seconds, but it's all good. We'll pray for you later. 62% reach for it immediately after waking, and 44% reach for it immediately and use it as an alarm clock. Amongst 18 to 24-year-olds, almost 90% reach for their phone within 15 minutes, 75% right when you wake up, and the numbers go on and on. So his thing is, this is not good. This is shaping us as humans. Um, Technology is beautiful and wonderful, but there's some things that are negative about it. So he created a devotional called With God Daily, and if you go on, we'll send out the links. This is something I've just began to use because I realize if I'm going to reach for my phone, because I'm that guy too, at least I'd have something foundational that would shape me. With God Daily, we can send the links out. I think you, every morning you get a little write-up, a little devotional, and some verses to read. But Sky isn't just a theologian. He's also, he likes to scribble and doodle. So I don't know if you can go to the next slide. So this is an example from this week. He draws pictures to help reinforce the writing. And it's so beautiful because some of you guys are visual. So here's a great one from this week. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And we think, you know, that means money and accolation and, you know, the kind of the from God posture. And then he gives a little sketch as far as what it actually means. And some of this rhythm would just help you early in the mornings uh, fight the tyranny of your phone distracting you. And so this is a daily thing from Monday to Friday. You get a beautiful write-up, scripture that will help lead your day, and also a picture or an image that will help do that. Now, here's the thing. Uh, There is a small donation, I think, for this per month if you want to enter into that, but we'll send out the links. That's all I have. That's all I got. My prayer for Praxis Church is that this would be the thing we're about, life with God. Reaching people, amazing. The vision to practice, phenomenal. I believe it's a phenomenal vision. But first and foremost, I just honestly, first of all, I want life with God, not life for God. This has been the huge change in my life. But I also want our community to walk in the way of Jesus. And that's ultimately to be with him. The very first thing Jesus said is, I want you to be with me. Before going out in pairs like the 72 did, I just want you to be with me. Imagine a church that's with God. This is our hope.